I'm Taryn Ward. And I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the freedom of expression, or free speech as it's sometimes known, to better understand the role that social media plays in our everyday lives and society. This episode will explore some basic and general definitions to facilitate our discussions around free speech and freedom of expression. We often start our podcast with a question, so we'll start today with the following. What do we mean when we talk about the freedom of expression or free speech? First, a quick anecdote. There are many variations on this one, but it's a good place to start. Let's back up to the 80s. So Ronald Reagan is sitting with Mikhail Gorbachev and raises the issue of free speech. Hooray. Really popular, I'm sure. (laughs) Free speech, he said, means that any man can walk up to the White House and yell, Ronald Reagan is an idiot. Ronald Reagan is an idiot. And not be arrested. Mikhail Gorbachev leaned forward and said, but of course, we have the same thing in the Soviet Union. Any man can walk up to the Kremlin and shout, Ronald Reagan is an idiot, and not be arrested. <laughs> I love that story. It's a good Thank one, you for right? sharing and starting. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, and it's not often that you can work Ronald Reagan into a, into a podcast, and I'm happy about it. But that one is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it would be an interesting place to start because, you know, it, it sort of frames out we talk about freedom of expression and free speech and these are in some ways really simple concepts that we all think we have a grasp of but actually when we start to dig in they can mean really different things to different people yeah i, I, I mean i guess that's exactly that's exactly right that's the, that's the beauty of jokes right they pull out the absurd because obviously you're allowed to say in soviet russia that ronald reagan was an idiot it was the government line it's interesting because Reagan sort of implied there, I guess, that there wasn't really a controls on what people can say in the US, which is also not entirely true, right? Uh, I mean, I, I remember the, the story of the, um, do you remember the, the Trump motorcade that was going past that woman who was cycling and uh, she made a, um, an unfortunate hand gesture and was subsequently fired from her job. So whilst you won't necessarily be arrested, you might suffer the consequences of your action. But, I mean, it was for sure true that despite the fact that the the, the, the main newspaper in, in uh, the Soviet Union was called Truth, saying saying what, what you really thought was probably not advisable, as it probably is still not entirely advisable, let's be honest, if you criticise the war in Ukraine in the Soviet, if, in, in Russia, you're, you're going you're gonna to suffer the consequences. Yes, and to be clear, there are things that if you walked up to the White House and said you would be arrested for. So it's it's a great story, very unlikely to be true. So I just want to put that out there. We're not sharing this story for its truth value. <laughs> that is not what's happening here. We're sharing it because, <laughs> yeah, I, that's probably should have started with that. Not a true story, very unlikely to be true. Anyway, there are all kinds of variations on this one. But, but I'm sharing it now really to illustrate a series of points around the nature of free expression and free speech. And I think it's a great one to keep in mind as we continue talking through our discussion of what is allowed and what isn't allowed. So, you know, if we're going to think about the White House, what can you run up to the White House and say? What can you not run up to the White House and say? And and I think it's a it's a good one to keep in mind as we walk through. So freedom of expression and free speech are often used interchangeably without consideration of whether there's a distinction with a difference or not. 
And this is increasingly the case recently where you can see that free speech is being used more broadly and universally, while U.S. courts are starting to use free expression more consistently. So it's this sort of weird changeover where we're seeing this, you know, bleeding through in ways we didn't even 10 years ago, really. And in some cases, works and makes a lot of sense because there is a significant amount of overlap. But if we want to seriously take it down to brass tacks and come to terms with these issues, we need to really understand not just where they overlap, but where they part ways. So for our purposes in this series, we'll use the freedom of expression, except where we're talking specifically about the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. We decided to approach it this way because free speech is more specifically defined and it can be a little bit misleading on its face. So free speech, when we use it, is going to refer to the free speech clause in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which says the following, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Again, this is not as simple as it sounds, and it's worth noting now that free speech is not even just about speech. It applies to other forms of expression where some recognizable idea is being conveyed or being attempted to be conveyed. So the right to wear black armbands to school to protest a war is a great example. Contributing money to political campaigns, in some cases. Burning flags in protests. And even music without text and dance may qualify in some circumstances. So again, the key here is whether there's some recognizable idea that's being communicated. So when we think about free speech on this podcast, we're not referring to speech speech. We're referring to the free speech clause that sort of broadly includes a lot of different forms of expression. This is this really interesting issue, isn't it? And and I what what worries me about the sort of bleed over of freedom of speech in into other contexts is it, it seems to be very heavily tinged with right wing or extreme right wing tendencies like you know you're you're trying to suppress me and my ideas and i should be able to say whatever i like in the context of of social media this was actually one of elon musk's big points when he was complaining about twitter when it was twitter and not x and 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 has continued to be a big thing for him it's sort of confusing to me that People sort of say one thing about freedom of speech, but actually mean something else, which is, it seems to be quite often, I'm allowed to say whatever I want, but you should shut up. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> that 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 really sort of bothers me. And you, you, we've seen it in Canada during the, these sort of, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, freedom protests where they, the, the truckers occupied Ottawa. Uh, and you see it in, in the UK as well. But it does seem to be that the right wing, for some reason, is latched on to freedom of speech. And it's sort of pervaded context where where it shouldn't really be and I'm I'm happy that you you know you decided to focus free freedom of speech when we're talking about specifically the first amendment. But what do you think Taryn? You're an American living in the UK. I think that's a really interesting point and it's it's always so interesting to hear people outside of the US talk about free speech because of course I grew up in in the US and that is my my framework and you know I I went to law school obviously a long time ago but even then, that was not how we thought about the First Amendment. The First Amendment and, and free speech in particular was really where the left played. You know, when you look back at some of the draft cases, when you look back at some of the 
limits that came in after 9-11. It was very much the opposite. It was the left who was saying, we need to protect and broaden free speech protections. And it was the right who was saying, no, 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 we need to you know, put some of these restraints in. And so it's interesting now to see that sort of flipped on its head. And I think in a later episode, it would be worth diving into how that happened, how how we got here, and and how that's likely to progress. But I think while that wasn't one of the reasons I separated free speech and free expression, it is true that I think it's more politicized, or or that may not be fair. I think free speech is politicized in a different way than free expression is, and it's more volatile. So that's a that's a good place to actually talk about the freedom of expression, um, which is something slightly different. So if we think of free speech as a freedom from government restriction, so remember we said that the text is Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. We can think of the freedom of expression as a more generalized principle. So this is something now that is so core to who we are as humans that it's protected from everyone and everything. And, and helpfully for us in this series, freedom of the press in terms of free expression is treated separately. Um, it's related, but it's, it's dealt with differently. Whereas in the U.S., free speech has sort of come to encapsulate free speech and free press in, ra- in ways that can be tough to pick apart. So often these two rights, free speech, freedom of expression, are interpreted to provide the same or some similar level of protection anyway. And, and I think that's important to say. So we're not talking about two completely different things here. But the framing of the right means that there's a different process. And understanding this helps us to understand when we look at specific examples, how European and American courts can sometimes reach different conclusions, why regulators therefore sometimes use different approaches, and why this has all become so complicated. Right. Complicated is a is a nice way of putting it, I think. Um, but this series, because it is a complex topic with, with so many facets, we're going to build on on previous episodes as we go. And we'll assume that our, our listeners have already um, have enough underlying knowledge to follow independently or listened to previous podcasts. And so we can avoid subjecting regular listeners to the, the same information every episode. <laughs> yeah, it helps. For the early stuff. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that makes it a little bit easier and more exciting for everyone. As long as we're talking about definitions, another set that's worth getting out of the way concerns the popularization of the term public square. Elon Musk, again, he makes an appearance so so often. He he talks about this concept a lot. And whether he's conflating Habermas's public sphere and the traditional town square analogy. The idea of a digital public square is effectively the idea that online spaces function as areas for public discourse. The core idea here is about recognizing and preserving open dialogue and the free exchange of ideas. The problem with this, of course, is that what is said in the public square has always been subject to regulation, at least in terms of when, where, and how that message is communicated and has been both provided for and protected by the government. So Habermas's idealized version of a public sphere is more complex, but I can guarantee it didn't look anything like the hellscape that has become Twitter. Sorry, X. (laughs) It was his right, freedom of expression. You want everything called X in your entire life. Just carry on. How do you distinguish anything in the end? Okay, this town square thing. Yeah, in theory... 
the internet is a great place to have communication. You know, our first series here, that was the that was the main thesis in the early part of all the episodes we did, which was like, people have a need to communicate. It's our superpower. We're very cool animals, but one of the things which we do, which is really cool, is communicate very complex things to a large number of people. The internet allows us to do that. But unfortunately, without rules, without guidelines and guide rails... People just scream into the void at one another. I mean, they're not even screaming at one another very often. They're very often just screaming. It's like primal scream therapy for jerks. A discussion requires two-way communication, a bit like us, right? Yes, the poster yeah. children for discussion. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll talk about literally anything. And the audience misses out on a lot of it because, you know, we do it when we're not actually on online. But you know, th- this is this is the problem. I mean, the people aren't discussing because there aren't guidelines. And 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 you know, back to another one of our previous themes, which is the al- the role the algorithm plays in what you see of the discussion. If you turn up in the public square, you can listen to everybody who's speaking and vote with your feet. Walk over there or walk over there. You know, speaker's speaker's corner in London. You can decide who you want to listen to and who you want to heckle and who you want to agree with. But social media companies through their algorithms and their financial imperative to sell ads are deciding what you actually get to listen to. So it's not even free. You're not get, making the decisions. There's an illusion of choice, which I think has helped build that you know dysfunctional hellscape, surely. Building on your primal scream point, um, I think you know there's some evidence that that can be a really healthy exercise. And it's fine for people to do that if they find it is a healthy thing for them to do. It's just that that never would have been allowed really to happen in a town square. You know, there are certain concert venues. I've certainly attended some concerts that is a lot of screaming and that's fine, but it's a privately hosted thing where you're making the decision to go there and can leave if you want to. This idea of having a town square or a public square is is really supposed to be, I think, more about a place where everyone is welcome to go. And the experience isn't so horrible that, you know, it leaves you, it leaves a a whole segment of the population feeling like they're not welcome there. And so I think it's just really thinking critically when, when we hear somebody talking about this as a concept, what, what are the actual similarities and differences? And just because it sounds great, doesn't necessarily mean that, that that's matching the reality. It's a great marketing line, isn't it? Oh, it's the public square. It's, it, I mean, it's the same as we talked about when we discussed the Arab Spring on Twitter. It's a great marketing line that all social media played. The fact is, of course, that a lot of people didn't in some countries didn't have access to the internet and they were doing it entirely different ways, but it didn't stop social media companies taking credit for it. And then, you know, they worked behind the scenes with governments to actually suppress what the governments in those countries considered seditious, you know, discussion. You can't have it both. You shouldn't have it both ways. Obviously, they have been able to have it both ways up until now. No, absolutely. So one other quick definition I think we should get out of the way before we dive in is sometimes you'll hear people now talk about free speech absolutists or free speech absolutism. And it's worth clarifying what that actually means in large part because much like free speech itself, the definition is not obvious on the face of the phrase. So these so-called free speech absolutists come in many forms, lots of varieties, 
But typically, these beliefs are rooted in a deep distrust of government authority and consist of some variation of these three things. One, there should be no content-based speech restrictions. Two, there should be no prior restraint, so no preventing speech or expression before it occurs. And three, any exceptions to free speech should be extremely narrow. So immediate incitement to violence and true threats, you might be able to address those, but really nothing else. Very few people argue for completely unrestricted speech in all circumstances, and typically even people who are very vocal about free speech absolutism recognize a need to restrict defamation and obscenity. The term is also sometimes used to describe people who are simply committed to protecting expression, even when it's offensive and unpopular. So it really does cover a wide spectrum of positions. Yeah, and this is where it it gets really gray, isn't it? My personal belief is that you might want to say something that is offensive, deeply offensive to me and most of the people that I know. You probably should have the right to say it as long as it's not you know, an egregiously untrue personal attack or a call to violence. But there are there are limits, um, and so it seems to me that society is struggling to find those limits. It's like there's a push to really prioritize people's feelings, and if you say something that I find really offensive, then then you know that's like being violent towards me, which is unfortunate. And obviously, you know, people's feelings are sort of important, but also a robust discussion is really important, and. You know, we have this amazing gift as a species that we can communicate, and we need to be able to do that. And where do you draw the line? This absolutism implies a lack of nuance in the same way as you shouldn't say anything which offends anyone ever, right? The world is full of nuance, and we need to focus on that. Everything is much more complicated than people want it to be, right? Everybody wants simple definitions and things which they can take and run with. And that really worries me. And the fact that so much of this conversation occurs now online, which is the worst, often the worst way of having nuanced conversations, um, it, it, it's a bit scary, I think. I, that's a really good point. I think this, the nuance part is is really important to all this. And I, I do understand to an extent the appeal of, of something that is really clear because this area of the law is so complex and so hard. And I think more than we're willing to admit we're all tired. It's been a, it's been it's been a tough couple of years. Yeah. Um, and, and so I do understand people being like, I don't have the headspace. You know, I'm not going to spend the next 12 hours of my life listening to you guys dive in in this podcast to all the nuance. I'm just going to say, yeah, I like free speech. I'm a free speech absolutist. But actually, even if you identify that way, and even if that's the line you're going to draw, there are some tough decisions you'll have to make within those boundaries in terms of, well, that doesn't really mean you think all speech should be allowed all the time. So it's still a line drawing exercise. And and I think it's about doing it in a meaningful and consistent way. And I think one of the things, to your point, is about intent. I think is part of getting rid of the nuance. We've wiped away a lot of those considerations. We're all going to say the wrong thing sometimes. But but what is the intention behind it? Is the intent to hurt somebody? Is it is it to cause a problem? Or is it, you know, that we are trying to be part of a debate and part of a discussion? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's that that is probably a really good place to leave it. Um, 
do we want to have a discussion? I personally, and I think you agree, think that discussion is the most important thing that we can do. Even if we don't change everybody's minds, the fact that we've all aired our views and everybody has a better understanding of your your viewpoint is already a goal achieved. And and it, anything which limits that discussion is a bit of a problem. But you know, I, I do worry about people who say I, I really think that people should be able to say whatever they think, and what it so often means. I should be able to say whatever I think, and people who think like me should be able to say whatever they think. But that group over there, they're really troublesome, and they should not be able to speak at all. Like that yes. is also that that seems to be at the core of this idea so often. Mm. Yes, I think I think it is, and we'll explore that more. In fact, next time we'll start looking at the history of the freedom of expression in free speech and explore what that history means for the current global and Western frameworks. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. Mm-hmm.